0: Well, thank you, John. Um, so I, you were here last year when I came, so uh, you know, and and now Jonathan's here. So it's just the the cycle of things. You got uh, new beginnings, and uh, and that and that usually signals there are also endings that happen. And I've I've been in uh throughout Oklahoma, and I know how much uh, we can grow to love congregations when we serve them. I know they've loved having you, and been very fortunate to have you both. And uh, so congratulations on your good service. And to Jonathan, I can say, um, you know, that really does put things in perspective. I, I was the inter- his interim when he was in high school, and I wasn't young then. <laughs> but um, but I've, I've heard such positive things about Jonathan um, from the people i talked to about him coming here, but hadn't met him. And I was just struck immediately by his energy and his enthusiasm, and I can see what a great what a great fit he is for you at this time and uh, so I've uh, you know I started coming when Keith was the pastor here I think I came maybe four years uh, four different years when Keith was the pastor and then I came uh, during that interim uh, between uh, Keith and Kelly and then I came through Kelly's time here and came through the interim then after Kelly left and I'm so glad to be here uh, with Jonathan here so uh, congratulations to you. And we're going to cover Ephesians this year. And uh, we've done Colossians, which is a, a sort of a companion letter to Ephesians. A lot of similarities. They're both prison letters written by Paul from prison. I'll do more introductory stuff tonight. But I do kind of want you to think about the big picture of what we're going to do this week in going through Ephesians. Just to sort of put the text we're going to do 1, 15 through 23, so you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. That'll be the text for the sermon this morning. But I want, I want you to think big picture about the, the letter to the Ephesians. It follows pretty typical letter form for Paul. It starts with an opening, verses 1 and 2. Paul, in all 13 of the letters that bear his name, he starts with the naming of who's sending it, and that's Paul, sometimes Timothy, others are with him. But sometimes it's just Paul, often designates himself apostle. So you get the sender, then you get the recipients. Uh, It's to uh, the saints who are uh, in Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's the way he refers to them. So it's faithful Christians in Ephesus, at the church in Ephesus, and then grace and peace to you. So that's the first two verses. There's your opening. What he typically does then is say... Immediately after that opening, I give thanks to God upon every remembrance of you, often naming their faith and their hope and their love, and, and, and we call that the thanksgiving section. He does that, but he adds a praise section to this, to this section that follows the opening. So uh, tonight, we'll get to the opening, and then 1, 3 through 14, where he gives praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that goes through verse 14. That brings us to the text we're going to do this morning, one fifteen through 23. He transitions from praise to prayer. And he offers a prayer for the church at Ephesus. That's what we're going to do in just a moment. But I want you to think through the rest of Ephesians. So that's all setting up the body of the letter. And the body begins at 2, 1 and goes through chapter 6, verse 20. Almost the end, just a few verses of conclusion. So that section that we call the body begins at 2-1. So chapter 2, chapter 3 is sort of his theological reflection. It's deeply theological. He names uh, significant doctrines and explains them in that section. And then in 4-5 and through six twenty, it's the exhortation section. If this is true about who we are, and if these things are true about what God has done for us, then we ought to walk in a certain way. And it's the exhortation section. The call to live your life in a certain way in light of what God has done for us in Christ. So that's the way the body breaks down. Theological reflection, exhortation, and then the last three verses, 6, 20 through 23, is, uh, is his conclusion. And he only mentions one person, Tychicus, who's carrying that letter, who's one of his co-workers. So now there's the big picture. So now let's look at Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, which is part of that praise and prayer section that's very early in the letter. And it's early, we're just starting here in the new year, it's the 15th day of January, so we're still thinking about New Year's things. And uh, I know that uh, people make a lot of resolutions, like two weeks ago, you know, right around the first. Now we're two weeks in, and reality starts to set in. Uh, gym memberships, you bought some new running shoes, you know you're going to get into better shape and here we are 15 days in and you, you might be or you, I mean you might be taking on new things and going to the gym and running or you might find that you know it takes a little bit more than just making a resolution at the beginning of the year and maybe you're back to just living like you were last year Maybe you'd made a resolution, you weren't going to eat as as much fast food, you're going to cook at home more, that'd be good for family time, it's healthier, but I mean, you know how busy life is, and it's been 15 days, so it's back to Chick-fil-A, lots of days, and um, you're going to get more organized, you know, that's a lot popular New Year's resolution, less time on social media, more time with family, these are the kinds of resolutions we make, and in most instances, we don't follow through on many of those. I hope more significantly at the beginning of the year we might offer prayers. There might be prayers we have for our family or for our own lives. Those prayers often revolve around immediate needs that we have. I mean, it's just the nature of the way we pray. We think about what do we need, and we pray for those things. And I've got no problem with that. I think that's a good strategy. I can't imagine praying and not mentioning things to God that are important to us or that we need. But when Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, it's interesting what he does not pray for. I mean, this is a church, if, if you want to think about how difficult it is to be a Christian in the world, we, don't, we in the United States and Oklahoma, we don't have any idea how difficult it would be and how hostile the culture would be to your Christianity like these people at Ephesus. I mean, this was a culture that was believed in many gods, even Jewish people didn't believe, that didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah would have thought people were heretics who thought Jesus was the Messiah. You just would have had no allies in culture. It would have been dangerous to be a Christian at Ephesus. In fact, when we look at Ephesians 19 and 20, we find that Paul almost got killed there. I mean, they were looking for him to beat him to death, beat him or maybe kill him. Now, they couldn't find him and he was able to move on. But it just shows you how hostile the culture was to these Christians at Ephesus. And yet, Paul doesn't pray for their protection. I'm certain that there would have been Christians at Ephesus who were sick and diseased. But Paul doesn't pray for their healing. There's no doubt that there would have been Christians here who lived in abject poverty. Most of the early Christians were just peasant class, lived in poverty, and yet... Paul doesn't pray for their financial stability. It would have been hard to live in a city like Ephesus in the first century. And I'm sure they struggled with sadness and sorrow and probably depression. And yet Paul doesn't pray for their happiness. Here's what he prays for. It begins at verse 15. For this reason, when I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, I did not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of himself, and that he might illuminate the eyes of your heart in order that you might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us, the ones who believe, according to the working of his mighty power uh, by his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenlies above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name which might be named, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. And he subjected all things under his feet, and he appointed him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for opportunities to study your word. I pray that this morning you would open our eyes I pray that you would illuminate our hearts, that we might know you in a greater way, and we might be more the people you've called us to be. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So when Paul begins his prayer, he notes a couple of things that are the basis of that prayer in verses 15 and 16. He says, Because of this, when I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, that's two of the three virtues that Paul almost always gives thanks for when he's thinking about his congregations it's faith, it's love, and it's hope. And you might think, well, he only says faith and love here, but he actually does squeeze hope in down in verse 18. We'll see it in a minute. So all three of those virtues do find their way into the prayer, but he really points out faith and love. Now, in this instance, it's faith in our Lord Jesus. It's trust in Jesus. Now, that would be noteworthy. Paul certainly knew this congregation, If you read the book of Acts, you discover that he helped found this congregation. He'd pastored here approximately three years. He knew the people who made up this church. And yet, it had been several years since he'd been there by the time he writes this. Uh, He's by there. He, He meets with the elders, the leaders from the church at Ephesus about 57. He'd probably been there 56 was sort of the end of that period of three years he spent there. And then he'd gone to Jerusalem and been arrested and he'd been in prison two years in Caesarea. He's likely in prison in Rome when he writes this. So it's been two, three, four years since he'd actually been at Ephesus, even though he'd had such a hand in establishing the church and pastoring them. So how does he know what's going on three or four years later? Well, he's heard about them. He has lots of connections at Ephesus and he's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus. He knows them. He also knows Ephesus. He knows how difficult it would be and how hostile the environment would be for Christians who who live there. In fact, I mentioned, I think, at the beginning here, he was almost beaten. They looked for him to beat him just outside the theater at Ephesus, and they couldn't find him. There were magicians at the city of Ephesus who tried to manipulate the gods for financial uh, advantage for them. They were polytheists. They believed in many gods. They worshipped the gods of what well, had been the Greek gods. And now it was the Roman version of those gods. There was a, One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple to the goddess Artemis that was at Ephesus. In fact, part of the group that wanted to get rid of Paul at Ephesus were the silversmiths. Who made the little idols of Artemis so people could have them and carry them with them and have them in their homes. Paul knew these people. He knew how difficult it was to be a Christian in Ephesus and in light of that he could give thanks that they continued and maintained their faith, their trust in Jesus despite the challenges. The other thing is he says, and I know or I've heard about the love which you have for all the saints. Now you don't have to live in Ephesus in the first century to know that's quite an accomplishment to say I've heard that you are a congregation that continues to have love for all the saints. You really love one another. I I, I don't have to tell you here, even though we're 21st century now and we're on the other side of the globe, that it's not easy to love all the saints. It's easy to love some of the saints. It's easy to love some of your brothers and sisters, those that are kind to you, those who show love to you. But but I'm not going to ask you to do it, but you could probably look around this congregation. I could do this in any church I'm in. And you could probably identify a person or two that you say, yeah, that person's a little harder for me to love, for whatever reason. But when he thinks about this congregation, he can point out these two things. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints, for one another, for their brothers and sisters. And he says, because of that, I do not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now that reference to my prayers leads him to talk about what he prays for them. And really, there's two main requests he has. And the second one has three parts. So what's the first one? Verse 17, he says, In order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of Him. So here's the first request for the new year for us. This was Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, that God would enlighten your mind. That he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Both of those words, wisdom and revelation, have to do with the mind. It's very Trinitarian as he phrases it here. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of glory. So there's the first person of the Trinity. And then he mentions the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the second person. And then the spirit, and I would capitalize spirit here, Holy Spirit, might grant to you uh, wisdom and revelation. So the prayer is that God would give them the spiritual resources that they need to grow in their faith. Father, Son, and Spirit. When you think about wisdom and what is wisdom... You might hear Proverbs in your mind. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. At other places, it can be the knowledge of God is the beginning of wisdom. But the connection between wisdom and knowledge of God is close. It's true in in the, the wisdom literature. It's true in Proverbs. Paul seems to be making that connection close here. And then Revelation. This reminds us of the nature of knowledge of God. When he prays here, at the, note the end of verse 17. Revelation in the knowledge of himself. Not just knowledge of God, but knowledge of God himself. It reminds me of a prayer that he offers in Colossians 1.9. Where he says, I'm praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But the prayer here goes even deeper than the one in Colossians 1.9. It's not just for knowledge of God. It's knowledge of God himself. It reminds me of what Jesus prays in John 17.3. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This kind of knowledge of God himself has to be more than an intellectual pursuit now i teach at university Uh, we're about intellect we're about mind Uh, i i give notes i give exams over those notes we do readings they're held accountable for that we very much are about the life of the mind but knowledge of god is more than that You can't know God by studying about God in the same way you might the periodic table. You know, the periodic chart of the elements. Anybody ever remember having to learn that? I remember it well. I remember how difficult it was. And I'd sure hate for anybody to test me on it today. That was roughly 1981 or 1982. The last time I can remember having to fill it in for a a high school chemistry teacher or something. You can learn the periodic table, that might help you know things about the earth on which we live and and the elements that make it up, but knowledge of God comes in a bit different way. It's not like learning about the biology of the human body or studying facts about the American Revolution. If you look back at chapter 1, earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, the end of of verse 8, he says, "...in all wisdom..." An insight, a very similar pairing of words as we have here. Making known to you the mystery of His will. And I think this helps us understand something about the nature of the knowledge of God. It's not purely an intellectual pursuit to know God. It's like a secret that is hidden that has to be revealed to you. Now you can learn things about God and that's helpful... But you can't know God himself apart from revelation. He has to make himself known to us by his spirit. In in all wisdom and revelation. The prayer is that they will come to a deeper understanding, a deeper knowledge of God himself. It does involve the mind. And only the spirit can ultimately do that. In Isaiah eleven two, it's a prophecy that looks forward to the coming of the Messiah and God's Spirit resting on Him. Here's the way it's phrased in Isaiah eleven two: The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, that is, the Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That the Spirit of the Lord would rest on Him... What a beautiful picture of the baptism of Jesus where the Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. Paul is praying that that same Spirit would descend, that same Spirit of Christ would descend on these Ephesian elders, and I'm confident that he would pray the same thing for us as we start this new year that the Spirit of Christ would descend on us and deepen our knowledge of God. It's not a one time thing. It's an ongoing work in our lives. And what is the primary instrument that the Spirit uses in order to deepen our knowledge and understanding of God? It's Scripture. It's the Word. This is why getting into the Word and committing to do that at the beginning of the year, if you're looking for a resolution, that would be a good one. To spend more time in God's Word because the Spirit uses God's Word to deepen our knowledge and understanding of God. This kind of revelation, this kind of deepening of our knowledge of God will transform your life. It's like putting on a new pair of bifocals. And You 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 didn't see me over there, but I've got two pair of glasses I'm dealing with now. When I first started coming here, I didn't need any. And then I started having a hard time seeing to read. So, And I bet some of you remember, early on there, I just all the time, on and off, on and off, on and off. Because I I was uncomfortable because I didn't need them to see you. But if I looked down, I couldn't see my page. I couldn't read. So then I start with the reading glasses. Finally, I got comfortable enough with those where I basically just left them on. But I could look over them and see you just fine. But now here I am, 57, knocking on 58 here in March. And uh, those early glasses I got for reading, now I can use those to see at a distance. And I need much stronger ones now to read. And, and here I'll show you. See, I wore these in when I came in because it helps me. Now, there you are. Your smiling faces, it's so nice. So here's what and I hear they're doing phenomenal things with bifocals these days. And and I'm gonna get a pair. But but I end up doing this at home. I may have a book and the TV's on. So I do that and set those right up there and I can see like this and I can look up and see that. So so next time I'm confident when I come back I'll have one pair of glasses that does all of that. But it's amazing what putting on a new new lens, putting on a new pair of glasses can do for for your vision to just transform it. That's the nature of deepening knowledge of God. It's like it changes your worldview. It's like putting on a new pair of glasses Now you can see, and it certainly has the power to transform the life of a church. So the first prayer has to do with the mind that God would enlighten their minds specifically. In deepening their knowledge of God himself. Not just facts about God, but actually knowledge of God himself. The second request, is, begins in verse 18, really occupies the rest of this passage. That God would illuminate your heart. He says in 18, and he might illuminate the eyes of your heart. So with wisdom and revelation, the focus is the mind... With the eyes of the heart, the focus is more the emotions, the, the spiritual part of a human being. We are body, soul, and spirit, and mind. And Paul's interested in the whole person. So he wants God to enlighten our, the mind with knowledge of God, but he also wants God to illuminate the, the eyes of the heart. That emotional, spiritual side of a human being. And we live our lives out of both of these, mind and heart. I hope we live out of, with reason and logic and we think through decisions that we make before we make them. I, I deal with students all the time who are thinking about going to college. And, and I know they probably have checklists somewhere and they're looking at location, major. They're looking at cost. Uh, they're looking at calling and all these things. And I assume somebody has a checklist going, and they're, they're weighing the checks at OBU versus the checks at other places. And I understand that. I had a son, uh, my son, my older son Luke, who was doing that a few years ago. He's now a junior, or he will be after this semester. He's real close. Um, and um, and, and we, we sort of did those checklists, but everything pointed to OBU for us. We get a little bit of a tuition waiver there, and that that made it sort of a no-brainer. And he loved OBU, so it's been great for him. But I hope we generally think logically and clearly and rationally about things. God's given us a mind. It's part of, I think, what it means to be created in the image of God. So use your mind. But if you think we make all of our decisions purely from the mind, uh, you're living a different life than I am. We got this other side, and you can call it heart. Another way to refer to it would be gut. Don't we like people who make decisions from the gut sometimes? Oh, yeah, all the research says this, but my gut tells me this, so I'm going with my gut. Who's going to fault that? I mean, unless it fails. Then we say, well, you should have gone with your mind. But we're very much mind and... Heart, mind and gut and I deal with 18 to 22 year olds on a regular basis and I see it there I recognize it there more than in any other age group they often make decisions with the heart so Paul knows we sort of live out of both of these faculties and often more with the gut than the mind so it's important that God would illuminate the gut the heart the emotional spiritual side of a person. And so, specifically, he sets out three requests related to uh, opening the eyes of the heart. He says, in order that you might know what is the hope of his calling. Now, that's the first request under illuminate the eyes of your heart, that you might know the hope of his calling. That they would come to a deeper understanding of the full implications of God's calling in their lives and in ours. Now I'm not talking about a call to ministry here. I'm not talking about a vocational calling or calling to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. This is a, this is a calling that supersede, that comes before that. That is greater than that calling. This is the calling to come to Jesus. This is the calling to be one of His disciples. This is that first call to come to, come to me that, that the Spirit issues. That calling, that they might come to a better understanding of the hope of His calling. The full implications of the fact that God has called you. And it has a past, it has a present, it has future implications. Look back at verse 4 in chapter 1. He says just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now if you want to look for God's calling, there's another way of expressing it. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before you existed. Before the world existed. God chose us. Now that requires a whole other lesson. We'll talk about that tonight. We get into issues about election and predestination and those kinds of things. And I, I don't want to rush through something like that here in the morning service. But it's sufficient to say you cannot ignore election in the New Testament or the Old Testament. And that election that God chose us is at the heart of his calling. To know what is the hope of his calling is to recognize that God chose us. We like to think we choose God. and and, In some sense, that's true. But we don't choose God unless he chooses us. I I think about the language of, you know, when I found God. And every time I hear it, I think, no, God found you. It's the nature of His calling. So it has this past before the foundation of the world. And then it's present. Look at the rest there in verse 4. Before the foundation of the world. In order that we might be holy and blameless before Him. This calling that God has given us has this ongoing responsibility to continue to grow in our knowledge of Him. It's part of what He's called us to be. That we would be holy and blameless. That we would be more and more set apart and dedicated to God and to his purposes. And then it has a future aspect. That we might know what is the hope of his calling. Hope is always forward looking. It's not just sort of hoping things that's really not founded on anything solid. We do that all the time. We, we say, I hope this and I hope that. This is something much more sure, that we might know the hope of his calling. He's going to say in Ephesians 4, 4, you were called in one hope of your calling. He sort of wedges the word hope between calling. You were called with one hope of your calling. This hope of his calling reminds us that his call in our lives does have a past, it has a present, we are supposed to be growing in our faith, but it also has a future, that we can have a confidence about what's out ahead of us, not only in this life, but in the age to come, because he called us. Again, back to chapter 1, he uses this language, verse 10, uh, for the... Activity of administration of the fullness of the times, summing all things up in Christ. This is where history is going. This is where the world is going. God is at work even now to sum all things up in Christ, to make him head over all things. And he has called us to be his people. It's quite an amazing thing. So he's prayed that God might illuminate the eyes of their heart. First, that they might know the hope of his calling. The second, look at the latter part of verse 18. That you might know the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints. Now you really have to think about this one, I think, or we'll miss the nuance of what he's saying. If you look back to verse 14, he's already mentioned an inheritance. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there. He said, Who is the down payment of our inheritance. Now it's clear there in verse 14, he's talking about the inheritance that God has for us. He earlier in chapter 1 mentioned our adoption, that we are adopted children of God. By virtue of our adoption into God's family, we have an inheritance. Yes. And it's a good inheritance. If you wanted to say, what family would you want to be part of just for the inheritance that you would get? Well, we'd start looking up who's the richest people in the world. Well, to think that God has adopted us into his family, Yahweh, the creator of all things. Everything belongs to him. And he has given us that inheritance. Good deal. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here in the latter part of verse 18. He's not talking about our inheritance. Listen again to the way he phrases it. In order that you might know what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints. Here the point is that they might come to realize more deeply that they are God's own inheritance. Yes, he has an inheritance for us, but it's also true that we are his inheritance. Now, it's a very Old Testament idea. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29, um, Moses is talking about the Exodus. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And this is, a, this is a repeated idea in the Old Testament, that God had called Israel, He had made him, them a people for His own possession, and they were His inheritance. Well, what does all that mean? It means that they are cherished, they are valued by God. They are His inheritance because they belong to Him, because they are His possession. And so it is true of the Christians at Ephesus, and so it is true of us. If you need anything to help remind you who you are in the world, to give you a sense of your identity and your inherent value before God, you are His valued, cherished inheritance. And Paul prays that they might, through the eyes of their heart, come to... Understand the full implications that they are God's inheritance. And then the last, in verse 19, And to know what is the surpassing greatness of His power for us to the ones who believe, according to the powerful working of His mighty strength. So here's the third request under the eyes of the heart. That they might know the surpassing greatness of His power for us. There's no verse, it would not be possible to construct a verse of Scripture with more power language in it. And I tried to capture it in, in, in translating it. There's four words for power here. The surpassing, uh, that they might know, the surpassing greatness of His power. And, and we get our word, this is a word, Greek word dunamis, we get, we get our English word dynamite. Now I don't want to say Paul meant dynamite dynamite didn't exist at that point in time so I want to be careful here but we've used that word as a way to describe in contemporary times explosives that kind of power but it's just a word for power but Paul uses that word here so that's one word for power in order that they might know the surpassing greatness of his power for us, the ones who believe according to the powerful working a second word for power this is the word from which we get our word energy. Energeon. It's just transliterated into English. The word energy. But it's a second word for power. And then he says. So according to the his powerful working. And then he uses two words to describe powerful working. Of his mighty strength. You just couldn't put more power language into one verse Paul straining his vocabulary and his rhetorical and grammatical skill in order to say that all this is at work for us yes they lived in a hostile environment for their faith but this power of God was at work for them yes we live in an environment that can be hostile to our faith and yet all this power is for us And you know that there are forces that are set against God and God's purposes and God's people in the world and the worst of them are unseen. They're spiritual forces. And he actually seems to allude to them in verse 21 when he says that he's elevated Christ to his right hand in the heavenlies over all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now it's like, there's four enemies, and they're powerful enemies. And he even uses some power language to describe them. One of them, the same word he uses to describe power in, the ver- in verse 19. Powers and dominion. But what is Paul doing? He's saying, yes, there are powers at work in the world that are set against us. But the surpassing greatness of God's power is over all those things. So we have this power available to us by his great strength. This is what he prays that they might come to know. That he might enlighten their minds, illuminate their hearts. That they might know the hope of his calling. That they might know that they are God's glorious inheritance, cherished by him. And that they might know the surpassing greatness of his power. Now to illustrate that power... He goes a little bit further here in verse 20. This power, which he worked in Christ. So if you want to see this power and what it looks like when it's in action. You can see it in Christ. By raising him from the dead. What kind of power are we talking about here? This is resurrection power. This is the power that was able to raise Jesus from the dead. Not simply resuscitate him, but raise him back to life in victory over death. A different matter than like Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son or someone else that was raised, but would eventually die again. This is resurrection power. And it caused Paul to pray in another prison letter, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, that I might by all means attain to the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection power. That's the power, he says, is for us. Not only someday when we'll be raised from the dead, but this power is for us Even now, raised him from the dead and by seating him at his right hand in the heavenlies. What is that picture of seating him at the right hand? The right hand is the position of honor and power and authority. And that's where Jesus was seated when he ascended into the clouds. It's a picture of his exaltation. That's the power that is available to us over all rule and authority and power and dominion, and over every name which can be named. Sounding again like Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. So this is the power that raised him from the dead. This is the power that seated him at the right hand. Verse 22. This is the power that subjected all things under his feet. That's a picture again of authority and victory. It reminds us of Psalm 110, the most commonly cited psalm in the New Testament, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then look at 22. and The latter part of 22. And he appointed him head of over all things for the church now that's the last he appointed him head over all things for the church now paul is going to say that christ is the head of the church in chapter 5 verse 23 and that's going to be an important point there and we'll probably get to that on wednesday night but that's not quite what he says here he made him head over all things That would be over every rule and authority and power in heaven and in earth. And he did that for the church. It is good news for the church that God elevated his son over all things. And he is our head. That's good for us. it's, It's similar to saying we have all this power for us. Well, now we have the raised, exalted Jesus who sits at the right hand and all of his enemies have been placed under his foot like a footstool and all this is for the church. Knowing that these forces exist that would like to do damage to the church and keep the church weak and just sort of limping along to know that he is our head. And he has been made head over everything. Tells us that we can have hope in the present time. So my prayer for you is Paul's prayer for them in this new year. That God would enlighten your mind and illuminate your heart. That you might know the hope of his calling. That you are his glorious inheritance. And that this surpassing greatness of his power... Is available to you. So, in the name of Jesus, raised, exalted, and made head over all, you can be sure as we begin 2023 that we, God's people, will win for the glory of our risen King, no matter what pandemic might come or what variation of the current pandemic that might come. No matter how high inflation rises. No matter how much you have to pay for a gallon of gasoline. And no matter how much you have to pay for a dozen eggs. No matter the political chaos. No matter how many people illegally might cross the southern border. And no matter what happens with the war in Ukraine. Here's my good news from Paul's prayer. We, God's people cannot lose our father we are grateful for your word i pray it would encourage us today it would lift us up to know the hope of our calling and the great power that you've made available to us may we not live in fear but in hope for the glory of our risen king i pray in the strong name of jesus Amen. We're going to offer you now the opportunity to respond to what it is God might be saying to you. And I'm going to turn it over to Jonathan.